Thank you again for being with us online for worship. The University Church of Christ, we're delighted that you're joining us this morning for, for worship and for this Bible study. When we first uh, were discussing among the leadership the idea of a theme for 2020, and we discussed the idea of having uh, 2020 spiritual vision, increasing and sharpening our spiritual vision for this year, one of the things that I suggested and I'd like to follow through with this morning is the idea of focusing on the family in the months of May and June, because of course in May we have Mother's Day and in June we have Father's Day. And so Lord willing, next Sunday morning we're going to be talking about mothers. But to this morning I'd like to just spend a little bit of time studying with you about the importance of, of family in general. And so that's what we're going to be doing. And if you will, be turning in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. I want to begin this discussion by asking a very simple question. Just how important is a good home and a happy family? I think most of us know the answer to that, especially if we've consulted God's Word and if we've developed that deep appreciation for our own families. But let me give you a different answer to that for a moment, if, you, if I may. J. Paul Getty is a name that resonates, I suppose, with some of you if you're older and you remember him as being a very wealthy man. In fact, he was, uh, Getty was, was a multi-billionaire, and I'm not sure that anybody knows exactly how many billions of dollars he did have, but there was plenty of them. Let me kind of put that in perspective by explaining how much just one billion dollars is. If you were to take a billion dollars and to spend $10,000 a day, you know how long it would take you to spend up a billion dollars? 274 years. Ladies, how would you like for your husband to say, when this uh, crisis is over, the stores are back open, I want you to go out and buy yourself something nice, but make sure that you don't spend more than $10,000 a day. That'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? And yet this man was a multi-billionaire, and, and, and yet still, with all of that money, he was married and divorced five times. Toward the end of his life, Getty said that he would gladly give all of his wealth and all of his possessions for a happy home. I hope that all of us understands that if you have a happy home and a stable marriage, then you're rich. Doesn't matter how much or how little that you may have in your bank account. If you've got a good home, then you are a rich person. Now here's an important caveat, because some people think that there's a direct correlation between having a lot of money and being happy uh, in, in terms of your, your family life, and, and that correlation doesn't exist. In fact, if there is a correspondence between wealth and happiness in the home, it's usually an inverse relationship. That is, the more money, the less happy they are. That's been the trend. But you and I know how important it is that our focus be exactly where it needs to be in terms of these earthly relationships. And that is that we have the right focus, the right spiritual focus on our families. You know, some couples are caught up in the possession obsession that is thinking that uh, the, the essence of life is to be able to, to, to get all the toys, all the pleasure that we can while we're on this earth. And, and that's not what God calls us to. In fact, uh, Stephen Farrar in one of his books calls this uh, the dreaded disease of affluenza. So we need to be careful that we're not working to provide things for our family and forget to give them the most important thing, and that is a viable relationship with the Lord. Someone has said it like this in cornbread English, some people are so busy earning their salt that they forget their sugar. And that's exactly right. 
Now, there are three possibilities that we can adopt toward our marriages. I think three perspectives that we can have as we talk about the important uh, subject of the home. And that is we're just going to uh, accept the status quo of our marriage. That's one option. Uh, no matter how good or how bad your marriage is, there's no desire, no, no aspiration really to improve and, and make that relationship better. That's, that's one option. And then uh, the second option is to terminate our marriage. And I don't have to tell you that there are a lot of people doing that. There's, the divorce court is busy in our, in our country right now. And so there are some who decide that the thing we need to do is just to walk away from this marriage relationship. Or the third option is the one that I want us to consider this morning. And that is that we're going to develop and cultivate and improve our marriages. And let me say if anyone in their right spiritual mind is going to opt for that third option. Because the second of those alternatives is not viable if you believe God's word on the matter, as well as the sad testimony of those who've experienced divorce. I don't know of anyone who, who loves or even likes divorce. I mean, even when it becomes necessary, no one really says, this is exactly what I was hoping for. No, they don't like divorce. And Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16 of the Old Testament says that the Lord God says he hates divorce. And so that second option is not really viable if we believe God's word on the matter. That leaves only two remaining alternatives. And that first option of we're going to accept the status quo of our marriage just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's a stalemate. And you know what a stalemate in marriage is, don't you? It's when you think you have a stalemate and she thinks the same thing. Now, seriously, a stalemate is when you both agree to have an unhappy marriage. And that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So the first of those two remaining alternatives just, just isn't very smart. And that leaves only one option, and that is to develop and to cultivate your marriage and to make it everything that God and you would have it to be. Which brings us to God's Word. If you've got your Bible open to Colossians chapter 3, we're just going to be looking at two verses in Colossians this morning that I think point us in the right direction. Now these are real short verses and they don't give us a whole lot of information, but it does give us a lot of spiritual insight into what God would have us to be experiencing in our homes. So let's begin with the first, verse 18. If you'll take a look at that verse, verse 18 is the counsel that Paul gives by inspiration to wives. And he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. There's at least a couple of words there that I think are key. And the first thing I would point out is the obvious. He said, submit to your own husband. Your responsibility as a wife is not to submit to anyone else's husband, but to learn to accept and to appreciate and to live with the spiritual leadership of your husband in that God-ordained home. Now here's a, a wrinkle. Wives need to know this, and that is that all men in the world have, have a problem. And, and you may be thinking of a long list of problems in your mind right now, but I want to identify only one. And that is the problem that I want us to discuss for a moment is, is called the male ego. That's what causes men to refuse to admit that they ever get lost. You know, GPSs and maps are wasted on men. Most men would rather put their ear to the ground on the interstate than to stop and ask for directions. In fact, someone has said that Christopher Columbus discovered America instead of the Indies because he didn't take his wife with him. Men don't ask for directions. They are the captain of their ship. They know where they're going, and we're going to make it to Chicago, even if we have to go through Miami. So the male ego is, is a very real entity. It is a re very real a factor that wives need to understand and to appreciate. And on the tragic side of this 
of this whole matter. The male ego is also what causes some men, when they go through a midlife crisis, to run off with their secretary and, and desert their family, to turn their backs on their family and to walk away. And tragically, it even causes some men to deny that they are even party to an unhappy marriage. Usually when marriages are troubled, it's the wife who first realizes that and seeks counseling or some other help. Men, because of the male ego, are not willing to admit that there is even a problem. That's usually the way it trends. Now, there are two attitudes that women can adopt toward the male ego. Now, women have their quirks too, so don't worry. We're going to get to that in the next verse. But a woman can say about the reality of the male ego, I don't like it, he ought not to have it. And you can just fight that tooth and nail for your entire life. Or you can understand that God made men that way. Remember the Bible in Genesis 1:26, where God said, let us make man in our image. And in verse 27, it says, male and female created he them. That includes the way men and women are wired between the ears. There's not just the obvious biological and anatomical differences between male and, and female. No, there, there's also what, what happens between the ears. It's how we think, and it's, it's what drives us in our lives, and, and that includes the male ego. I think it was John Gray who wrote a best-selling book some years ago that was entitled something like, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. You know what a better title would be? Men Are From Earth, Women Are From Earth, now deal with it. We have to live together. We, we get to live together. God's plan is one man, one woman. And so a part of, of this whole process of understanding how that we can progress and improve in our family lives and in our marriages is a part of, of understanding the difference between men and women and how we think. So Colossians 3.18, if you still are looking at that verse, is telling us among other things, that it's a man's own wife is to be the one who is going to feed and reinforce her husband's ego and his self-esteem. When he's been battered and beaten on the job, you as a wife are to be the one to build him up, to reassure him, reaffirm him, and to tell him what a man he is. I remember reading a bulletin article some years ago that speaks to this very point. It was written by our brother Doug Parsons, and it reads like this. Doug says the basic fear of rejection may be one of the most basic fears of the human experience. Dr. Joe Harding tells a heartwarming story of a man who finally decided to ask his boss for a raise in salary, and that was on Friday. He told his wife that morning what he was about to do, and all day the man felt nervous and apprehensive. Late in the afternoon, he summoned the courage to approach his employer, and to his delight, the boss agreed to the raise. So the man arrived home to a beautiful table set with their best china and candles were lit. His wife had prepared a festive meal and immediately he figured that someone from the office had tipped her off. Finding his wife in the kitchen, he told her the good news. They embraced and kissed and then sat down to a wonderful meal. Next to his plate, the man found a beautifully lettered note and the note read, congratulations, darling. I knew that you would get the raise. You sure deserve it, and these things will tell you how much I love you. But while on his way to the kitchen to get dessert, he noticed that a second note had fallen from her pocket. Picking it up off the floor, he read the following, Don't worry about not getting the raise. You deserve it anyway, and these things will tell you how much I love and respect you. Well, there's a woman who's, who understands what it means to live in an understanding way. Total acceptance, total love, 
Her love for him was not contingent upon his success at work. In fact, it was just the opposite. If he were to fail there, Doug says, if he were to be rejected by his boss, he'd be all the more accepted at home. She stood behind him no matter what, softening the blows, healing the wounds, believing in him, and loving him unconditionally. I think that's what we're talking about. I think that's a part of what Paul had in mind when he wrote Colossians 3 and verse 18. Now, ladies, there's two attitudes that you can have about the reality of your husband's self-esteem and, and male ego. And you can think if, if I'd wanted another baby, I'd have had one. And you can think that that's, that's pettish and babyish for your husband to have a male ego, or you can realize and you can understand the legitimacy of his need. Now watch this closely. If you do not realize and understand that need, that he's still going to have his male ego, and he's still going to need nursing from time to time, and he'll be a sitting duck for some sweet young thing who will come along and tell him how big and strong he is and what a man he is. Let me tell you, and in fact, I probably don't have to tell you, that that's happening all around the world even as we speak, and it's happening more and more in the church. How that men fall prey because of the male ego to those kinds of tempting situations. Here's a caution, ladies. Nagging is the opposite of the need that men have. It tears down his self-image and makes him want to give up. Now back to the text. The word submit here, or subject, depending on what translation you're reading, means more, I think, than just deferring to the God-appointed leadership of your husband in the home, although that's a part of it in light of Ephesians chapter 5. It also means accepting his idiosyncrasies. My definition of marriage goes like this. Marriage is a relationship that involves mutual acceptance and personal commitment to growth and progress. That is, it's the understanding that I'm not going into the, to this marriage trying to change you. The only person I'm going to try to change is, is me, and that's for the better. Note it's almost impossible to change anyone by anything other than just passive influence. If you don't believe that, reread 1 Peter chapter 3, the first seven verses. And if you're out here and listening to this and you're still dating, don't, don't look at your perspective made as a, as a diamond in the rough whom you'll refine and polish and develop into the man of your dreams. In all likelihood, if that's your, if you, that's your take on marriage, he won't be the man of your dreams. He'll be a nightmare. And what you're communicating by your refining efforts is that he's not good enough for you as he is, and he will interpret that as personal rejection. Because that's what it is. Look at the next verse. This is the counsel to husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. I might also indicate here the identification of the subject of this command. Husbands, he says, love your wives. It ought not to have to be said, but in our culture, I need to say it. Husbands, you are to love only your wives. You demonstrate the kind of love that Paul is talking about here, not to someone else's wife, but to your own. Now, here's the other side of the coin. Most women have a big problem. And I do not mean to imply by what I'm about to say that women are not men's intellectual eagles, or in some case, our intellectual superiors. But the reality is, across the board, they have a really big problem. And that is, women have poor memories. And specifically, they cannot remember that we love them. You see, you can do a special thing or special things to remind your wife of your love and commitment and appreciation, and you can't just leave it at that. 
You're going to have to do that over and over again. You're going to have to do that with some regularity and some frequency because she won't remember that you love her and you'll have to constantly reaffirm her by words and by action the fact that, that you continue to love her. That's a part of what verse 19 is all about. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be bitter toward them. So in Colossians 3.19, we need to note that the word love here in the Greek language is the word agape. It's not phileo, it's agape. And that means that this is an active term. This is a verb of action. It is a decision of will that I'm going to seek your highest good even above my own. It's not a feeling, it's not an emotion, and it is not an affection that Paul is discussing. He's talking about that, that we as husbands need to take action to show, to demonstrate in a tangible way our love for our wives. You know, some think that love is the feeling that you feel when you get the feeling you're going to feel what you've never felt before. But this kind of love is not a feeling. This love, again, is the determination and the choice of will to take action, to demonstrate and to seek your highest good even above my own. Now, we as husbands can have two attitudes about this reality. And that is that we can think it's silly that women have to constantly be reaffirmed of our love and respect and appreciation. And we think it's silly because we don't have that same level of need for emotional reassurance. As in the old boy who said, I told you 30 years ago that I loved you. If I ever changed my mind, I'll let you get. No, reasonable men realize that that just won't get it. That's not the way a happy marriage and a solid home works. Or the other option is, and it's the option that God's word recommends, is that we can recognize that God made women this way. And we can understand and appreciate the legitimacy of that need. You see, God made women with an attitude of, uh, of interdependence that only we as husbands can satisfy fully. Now, I realize that if Gloria Steinem, while she was still alive, or people of that mentality heard me say that, they would see that I enjoyed a slow and painful death. But regrettably, some of my own sisters in the church have come to feel that same way. That is, they, they feel like any type of dependence denotes inferiority. And, and it's not so. In fact, if you began to believe that, then you need to go back and reread 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. Here's what Paul says there. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, there are several takeaways from that simple passage that we need to appreciate, first of all, that the head of man is Christ. Men answer to someone, and that's the Lord himself. But that the head of woman is, is man, that's by God's decree. That's not man's decision. That's not our idea. That's the way God wants our homes to be run with the spiritual leadership placed firmly on the shoulders of the husband and the father. And then the head of Christ is God. Was Christ in any way inferior to God the Father? No, he wasn't. It was a matter of role. It was a matter of function. And he deliberately emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant, Philippians 2, 5 and following says. And that's pretty much the way our, it parallels our relationships in the home. The wife is in no way inferior to the husband. We're not talking inferior or superior here. We're talking about role and function. I talked to a woman one time who's successful and very respected in her career. But what she's missing is the respect and the active appreciation of her own husband, just like what Paul is addressing in this text. And she said, as best I can recall, I'm trying to quote her words, she said, I shake hands with some of the most prominent and powerful men in my occupational field. But what I'd really like, what I would really like 
is for my husband just to squeeze my hand every now and then and tell me that he loves me and that he appreciates me. You know, I don't think that's a rare individual. I think that there's a lot of, of godly, right-thinking women out there who feel the same way. And men, husbands, we show our smarts when we regularly do something, and it's better even if it's unexpected, but when we regularly do something to show our appreciation and our love for our wives. Now, it's your assignment and your responsibility to figure out what that is. You need to know what it is that pushes your wife's buttons and helps her to feel appreciated, loved, and, and uh, reaffirmed. But I think that's also a part of what Peter had in mind in 1 Peter 3, 7, when he said, live with your wives according to knowledge, or one version says, in an understanding way. You need to know whether it's notes or candy or flowers or whatever it is that communicates love and respect and the fact that, hey, I was thinking about you, and I want you to know how important you are to me. And, and if we're smart, we're going to be doing that on a regular basis. You don't be like the man who went with his wife to a marriage counselor because it had gotten that bad. And it didn't take long for the marriage counselor to realize just what the problem was. And the problem was the very thing we've been discussing. This man never really made any effort to show his appreciation, to demonstrate his love for his wife in, in any way. And so after just a little while, the counselor understanding what the problem, diagnosing the remedy, got up off of his chair and came around the desk, asked the man's wife to stand up, and then he gave her a big bear hug. And he looked at the man in, in directly in his eyes and said, now that's, that's what your wife needs seven times a week. And the man's response was, well, I can bring her in on Monday through Friday, but I play golf on Saturdays. No, no, we're not talking about somebody else doing that. We're talking about you doing that, hugging your wife, expressing your love and your deep appreciation for who she is, for what she means to you, and for what she has done for you in your life. One woman said, I'd rather have one rose for no reason than a dozen roses for some reason. And maybe that's typical. You see, if a husband is smart, he's going to show special attention and special appreciation to her, watch this carefully, when he is in the presence of others. You see, some couples don't know that. And they continue to deteriorate their marriage relationship by playing the annihilate your mate game when in, they're in social situations. When they're around other people, they're tearing their husband or their wife down. That's not what God's people need to be doing. We need to be building them up. When we're around other people, we ought to be not to a sickening degree, but we need to be telling people how much we love and appreciate our wives and our husbands. Husbands need to commit ourselves to being a one-woman kind of man, and we need to communicate that fact and that commitment to our wives with every word, with every action, and with every demonstration of attitude. In fact, I told my wife one time, if you ever leave me, I'm going with you. By the way, sometimes the best compliment that we can pay to our spouse and I'm talking specifically husbands in regards to wives here, is the second-hand compliment, and I will not reflect upon your intelligence by explaining what that is. I think you know. Let me spend just a moment, if I may, discussing the consequences, the payoffs of these biblical attitudes toward marriage. You know, there's a lot of other places in the New Testament, Ephesians 5 in particular, where the writer, by inspiration, has reveal to us the mind of God about what God would have for our homes and our families and especially our marriages. 
But here's a place where just two verses points us in the right direction, gets us to thinking the way God would have us to think. So what are the payoffs? If I do, if we do as husbands and wives exactly what Paul has said here in Colossians 3, 18 and 19, what kind of, what kind of harvest will we reap? Our beloved brother V.P. Black used to say, and I heard him say on a number of occasions, a good marriage is the very vestibule of heaven. And I think he's exactly right about that. Both the husband and the wife in that kind of marriage realize that it's no longer you and me. Now it's us. And there are two people involved in this relationship. And there are no one-way streets in a marriage. There are two-way streets in every situation. And Matthew seven twelve certainly applies to the marriage relationship. Whatever you would that men would do unto you, do you even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or said another way, do to others as you would have them treat you. That sure applies to the marriage relationship. You treat your husband, you treat your wife the way you want to be treated, and you'll be amazed at how that will solidify that marriage relationship and make it finer and richer and better than it's ever been before. You see, biblical attitudes and actions like we've discussed this morning, will not only allow, but will then actively cause longevity in the marriage relationship. When you see someone who's been married 40, 50, 60, maybe even 70 years, you can know that there's something that they have there, some special insight that got them to that place. I love the fact that years ago, our brother, beloved brother Donnie Hilliard had our family's magazine. And, and some of you know that the emphasis of that magazine was as Brother Donnie went around and interviewed couples who had been married for a long, long time, most of them at least 50 years, what he wanted to share with the church and what he did share was the success concepts and ideas. In other words, he asked those people, how did you stay married for so long? Give me some pointers and let me share those with God's people. And, and that's really what we need. We, we don't need to know how to dissolve and deteriorate our marriages. We need to know how to strengthen them and make them better. Peter calls that, by the way, in 1 Peter 3, 7, being heirs together to the grace of life. And isn't that a beautiful way to express it? Because that's what a Christian husband and a Christian wife really do. They are heirs together to the grace of life. And they don't grow apart they just keep getting closer and closer because of their mutual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we can readily see that God's very serious when he speaks on the subject of marriage and the home. And so when we focus on the family, as we're going to, Lord willing, do this month and next month, I hope that we come to a deeper appreciation that God's way is always best. And then in the beginning, when God first instituted marriage, it was one man, one woman for one lifetime was his plan and nothing has changed. By the way, the only exception for the dissolution of that marriage is noted in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, and that's adultery. But that exception, I need to point out, is included to further preserve marital fidelity. That exception in Matthew 19, 9 is not an escape clause, and that's not fine print in the contract. And, and, and let me say this as we end. The single most important key to having a happy home and having a good marriage is to have a home where Christ lives. Marry someone who, who loves the Lord even more than he or she loves you. And you're guaranteed by God himself to have that kind of wonderful relationship. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 127 verse 1, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. 
So we're talking about a home where both the husband and the wife are equally committed to the cause of Christ. In fact, I go one step farther and say their first commitment is to the Lord. And they'll tell you that. If we've got the right kind of marriage and the right kind of home, we're going to love the Lord supremely. I love the Lord more than I love my wife, more than I love my husband. But that doesn't detract from that earthly relationship at all. It only makes it stronger and finer. It makes it everything that God would have it to be. I don't often quote Billy Graham, but in one of his articles about the home in the newspaper, he said this, in America, one marriage out of every two breaks down. That's still pretty much the, the norm in our country. He goes on to say, but where the family attends church regularly, the ratio is not one out of two, it's one out of 40. And if the family not only goes to church together, but has a daily devotional and family prayer, the ratio of divorce is only one out of every 1,015 marriages. My takeaway from those stats is this. Your family does not have to be one more sad statistic in a long line of failed marriages. You can be in a group where only one out of 1,000 fails, and that group has overpowering odds of success. You see, with Christ as the center and the circumference of your home and with your family's activities revolving around him and his church, you can scale the heights and you can breathe the rarefied air of genuine success in marriage. But let me tell you, a truly successful marriage begins with you. Faulkner and Burkeen were right. One of their lessons was entitled, The Trouble With Us Is Me. And so this morning, if in your heart you're committing to make a better marriage, and if you want to have a Christian home, you've got to make sure that, that you're right. Don't work on trying to change your mate, your husband, or your wife. You work on you. And there may be some who are listening to this lesson this morning who need to make your home a thoroughly Christian home by you making the decision to become a child of God. If so, I hope you know that the invitation of the Lord is open 24 hours a day. And if you decide to, to follow the Lord and you want to put him on in baptism, you can call the church office and someone will make that happen for you. So we need to make sure that we're right before God. And then we can have the kind of home that God would have us to have. I hope that's your desire, your aspiration, and, and your determination to live for Jesus and to have a Christian home. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of this study this morning. Let's end with prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you again for your tender mercies that are new every morning. We thank you for your love and for your grace, for your compassion and for your long-suffering. And Father, we know that as, as individuals with our feet firmly planted on this earth, that we make mistakes, we don't always demonstrate wisdom in our choices, and sometimes that affects our families and affects our homes and affects the way we parent our children. Father, forgive us when we fail. Strengthen us in our weaknesses. Help us each as husbands and wives, if we are currently married, if we, if we will make that determination and commitment in our lives, that we will be the kind of Christian that you would have us to be, knowing that if we make that determination come true, if we work to be your children and faithful, godly people, then we'll be the kind of husband and the kind of wife that you would have us to be, and that our homes and marriages really will be the very vestibule of heaven. That's what we pray for. That's what we ask for. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, and amen.